Oh, Father, God of the universe, the great I am, we come before you this morning. We just marvel at your grace. We are so grateful that you know the end. Our hearts ache with what's happening across the globe. We see brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering dearly at this very moment. Father, in the midst of it all, we're reminded in Revelation 5, there is someone who is worthy to take that scroll. And that's our Savior. That's our Lord. And that's our Messiah. Lord, as we come to the text this morning, we're reminded once again, who is worthy? You are. You are our God. You are the one who reigns supreme. And you are the one who places and removes emperors, kings, presidents, and Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign one. It's in the name of our Savior, the one who gives us intercession to you, the one who has revealed you, we pray in his name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke 21. I don't know about you, but it's been a heavy week. There are those that are suffering personally, but also globally, our world is weeping. <laughs> For the first time since 1945, a major war is being fought on European soil. EU Foreign Affairs Chief Joseph Borrell says these are among the darkest hours of Europe since the Second World War. And Russian President Vladimir Putin warned any country who attempts to interfere would lead to consequences you have never seen in history, end of quote. So no wonder various articles and newspapers and online journals are stating one title was the conflict in Ukraine, a step towards the apocalypse. The Daily Mail from the UK said, from swift resolution to apocalypse. Is this the sign of the end? <laughs> Between a pandemic that we've faced for the last couple of years called COVID to Russia, are we living in the end times? Thankfully, scripture provides us with some guidelines and direction in this very matter. How apropos that as we're moving through the Gospel of Luke, that Luke 21 fell on last week and this week as we look at the continuation of what's called by many scholars the Olivet Discourse. These are Jesus' words to his followers on the Mount of Olives as we enter those final days in which Christ will be crucified. And that what we call often the Passion Week. We looked at verses 5 through 19 last week, and I want to start at verse 20 this morning. It says, but when you see Jerusalem, this is Jesus speaking, surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those, are, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city, you need to depart, get out. 
And those who are not in the country, or who I live out in the country, must not enter the city. Don't go there. It's not safe. Why? Because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Verse 23, woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing their babies in these days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth. Nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. People will be fainting from fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. As we examined last week, one of the difficulties in interpreting and, and dissecting this sermon is when is Jesus referring to what's happening in the immediate future versus what happens later in the end? And as we saw, if you flip back last week, we looked at this, but I, I want to refresh our memories. In verse 6 of chapter 21, it says, and for these things, well, first of all, the disciples said how wonderful the temple is. And the Jewish temple in the first century was definitely that. Herod spared no expense. We talked about that. We showed some photos last week that you can look at online. The Herod's temple of the first century was indeed a magnificent structure. And they're boasting of this, and Jesus says in verse 6, and for these things that you're going to gaze on, the days will come when, the, when not one stone will be left on another, and all will be torn down. So Jesus, referring to the Herodian temple, says, this sucker's going down. It's going to be destroyed. And in 70 AD, it was by the Roman soldiers. But notice the disciples' response, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? And Jesus then goes to speak to the end times. And so it's, it's wed together, and we're going to see this as we move along. Because upon hearing the prophecy of Jesus, they're assuming it's the end. And again, Jesus is re referring to the immediate prophecy, which foreshadows the end as well. So we'll, we'll dissect that as we go through this section because when we get to verse 20, the question is, is Jesus referring to the end, the temple that will be rebuilt in the end times, or is he referring to the temple, the immediate one, which is Herod's temple? And I think he's referring, when we get to verse 20, he goes back to verse 6, and we're looking at the immediate destruction that is impending upon the Jerusalem temple. Why do I say that? One, I think it links back to 6. Secondly, as we look through verses 20 through 24, while suffering is certainly present, it's not as we will see that it's unprecedented in the tribulation period. Jesus will return to the future in verse 25, which we'll see in a minute. And I think there's a clear demarcation between the two events. And finally, we're, we're looking at a pattern. And keep this in mind as we go through the text. We're dealing... Both are eschatological. What do I mean by that? It's the study of end times, last things. And it's God's plan that the fall of Jerusalem, which is going to happen here in 70 AD, 
is a down payment or it's an assurance of what will happen or a pattern for what will happen in the future. We've already seen that. And when Babylonians came in 586 BC, they destroyed the Solomonic Temple. Then in the intertestament period when it was rebuilt, the Greeks came and they desecrated that temple. Daniel prophesied about that. And even Daniel talked about, is this I would argue is Daniel saying it's going to be a pattern. When we get to the Roman era, it's destroyed in 70 AD, that temple. And I believe a future temple will be rebuilt that will be destroyed, which again, this temple in 70 AD is foreshadowing. And so again, you, we have a pattern that's being set forth Warren Wiersbe calls it 70 AD as a dress rehearsal for what's about to occur. Uh, I had less than a delight, I think I mentioned before, was in a, a play in college years because I liked this girl, thought I'd try out and just try to get in. But I can remember the dress rehearsal, the, the director saying, now, this is a dress rehearsal, but you need to assume that everyone is sitting out there, the, the seats are full, and, you know, this is it. So, yes, this is a dress rehearsal. It's establishing what we're going to see, but it's not the ultimate end. 70 AD is just foreshadowing, again, as we see here. Um, some scholars would argue that Luke is writing after the fact, that Luke, as he pins verses 20 through 24, is talking about 70 AD that occurred. And I have real problems with that because Luke pinned this gospel before 70 AD. <laughs> so that doesn't fit. And there's other reasons if we had time to divulge into that. Well, th let's unpack this. Let's look at this and we'll highlight this as we go along, but bear with me. It says in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it's encamped. We're seeing that on live on TV right now, aren't we? With Kiev, this nearly 3 million populated city surrounded by the Russians. And that's this idea here. And Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, tells us that the, the siege of Jerusalem, which lasted five months in 70 AD, over one million Jews will be killed. Now, uh, sometimes he inflates numbers. Uh, he's certainly not scripture. But it, it had to be drastic. It had to be hundreds of thousands who were killed or taken into captivity. It was extremely horrific. Read the historian's. Josephus said that children were cooked by their own parents for food because they were starving under the siege. I can take you to the burnt house. It's a museum. It's two stories underground in the old city. We go down and show you it's a home that's been ruined that was discovered, destroyed by the Roman siege, the destruction in 70 AD. They found a woman's forearm holding a blade. The rest of her body was, it was severed from the body telling us how graphic it was at this time frame. And this is the idea. And, and the text tells us they know the desolation has come. That, I would argue, is echoing what the book of Daniel talked about. This abomination of desolation. It's one who desecrates the temple. He brings sacrilege to this area. And again, in many ways, the Babylonians did it. The Greeks did it. The Romans, in, in one way, will do it. And in the future, we know the Antichrist will desecrate the temple. And the text says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The Old Testament often talks about fleeing to the mountains. Nahum 3 states, you shepherds, 
you are asleep. O King Israel of Assyria, excuse me, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered in the mountains with none to gather them. It's a place to hide. Take you to the Judean hills. You'll see caves all over the mountainsides. It's a great place to hide. And we know they did in the first century. Many of them fled to Pella, which is the Petra region, modern Jordan, to flee from the Romans. And the text tells us if you live in the city, you need to get out quick. <laughs> and, and so you see this massive refugees that are fleeing from the city. Again, uh, we're seeing that live in the news, are we not? <laughs> and it says if you live in the country, don't go to Jerusalem to think you're going to find safety uh, in its walls. That's the worst place you can be, is what the text is telling us. And it says in verse 22, it says, because these are the days, watch this, of vengeance. This is God's wrath. Nothing new. Deuteronomy 29 or 28 states, curses will come upon the Israelites if they do not obey the Lord. And verse 40 of that chapter of Deuteronomy says, and if you don't obey, I'm going to bring a foreign nation who will take your cities, who will destroy you, who will kill you because you're not obedient the unfaithfulness to God on the part of the Israelites results in judgment. I've heard it said, well, that seems rather sadistic, doesn't it, of God? I mean, if he can work in hearts, let's create a revival at the time of Jesus. They could have responded to him and there's their king and this would resolve all matters. It seems quite horrific that God should take this route. Oh, but careful. God's judgments reveal his righteous character. You can't have a loving God without a God who's just and holy. They go hand in hand. If he's just love, you got a teddy bear. <laughs> and in fact, D.A. Carson's book on the difficult doctrine of the love of God talks about that he does judge shows that he loves He's willing to go all lengths to preserve his character, his holiness. And it's what he demands of all people. Psalm 103, it's the fighter verse that uh, if you're memorizing those verses, we have those listed on the bulletins uh, every week. But we're memorizing Psalm 103 as a congregation. And in that, Psalm 103 is great. God is merciful. And the psalmist says, why is he merciful? Number one, his anger is short-lived. Oh, God does get angry. <laughs> he does not tolerate sin. Jesus, when he wept outside of Lazarus' tomb, he did that. And, and the text tells us he was intensely moved. That Greek is very clear. He was extremely angry. He knew Lazarus was going to come from the grave. Why was he angry? Because the effect of sin upon humanity. He was, he was angry at sin. And God is angry. And the psalmist states, but it's short-lived. Second of all, the psalmist says he's merciful because he does not hold us accountable to what he, he doesn't hold us accountable to our sin, the level of sin that he should. He's gracious in how he responds. And the psalmist states he's quick to forgive. And so I would argue this judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, God has been extremely gracious with Israel. He presented them their Messiah. They had an opportunity to respond. They even brought out the palm branches on Palm Sunday to say, yes, this is our king. And yet they failed to repent and to respond as a people. 
And I would argue with God's judgment, there's always a chance to repent. Again, these are not innocent people who are going to be judged. As well, how can we say that God is righteous? And I think of the book of Revelation. You see God's judgment unleashed upon humanity. And how do they respond? What does Revelation 9 states? Here God is unleashing his judgments and it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of their works, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality. Wow. Revelation to me is a commentary in one way on humanity. We're not going to repent. As a people, our hearts are dark. It doesn't seek after God. And then so that's where we see his judgment is legit. It's valid. And finally, his judgment is a vindication of the righteous, which Revelation clearly points out as the saints gathered around the throne are praying for God to vindicate his name. And so here we see God is going to unleash judgment upon Jerusalem, upon the people. And it says it's a time of woe, verse 23, to those who are pregnant. Well, this is, it's a, if you're pregnant, it's a difficult time to move. So I've seen. Uh, it, 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 and, and if not dangerous to move a pregnant woman, not to mention there's no orange sherbet or uh, pickle juice available, right? Uh, this is not a good time to, to be pregnant or to have a little one who you're responsible for caring for and feeding. It is not good. In verse 24, they will fall by the edge. And so here you have this uh, typical scene that's throughout the Old Testament description of being uh, slaughtered, right, by the edge of the sword and led away to captives. It's, again, a phrase that we see time and time again. But Luke mentions something very unique. He says in the end of verse 24, they will be trampled down by the Gentiles, and watch this, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke is the only gospel writer that records that phrase from the, the Olivet Discourse. And you, you have to ask, why did he include that? Now remember, the gospel writers are looking at this life of Christ and they're pulling out events and things that are said for the purpose of their narrative. And we know Luke is a Gentile. He's writing to Gentile, well, Gentile, Theophilus, to show that Jesus really is the fulfilled promise to the Jewish people. But one of the questions that he's got to answer, Luke does, I would argue, in verses in Luke and in Acts, is what do you do with the Jewish people? Why didn't they embrace a Messiah if this was the promised one? Oh, how do you fit this all together? And so Luke is trying to dispel this all out. He says, listen, there's a time for the Gentiles in verse 24. And you go, what is that? Well, it's a Gentile political domination. And again, while that phrase is not used in the Old Testament, it's referred to many times. Daniel 2 states, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. There's a time coming when we see the Gentiles ruling, but eventually they too will be ended. In fact, notice several implications from this phrase. First of all, there is a time limit. There's a period for the Gentiles in which they will dominate. It also tells us 
if you look at this text, it implies there's a subsequent period or a different nature. It says until the time is fulfilled. So what's the next thing? I would argue it demonstrates there's a time for Israel. There's a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. There's still a future plan for God's people that he chose back in the Old Testament. And I would argue that period will close with a hope for Israel when Israel will permanently gain political control of Jerusalem at the second coming of Christ. Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with him. When Christ comes the second time, there's going to be an all-out revival among the Jewish people. This is why there's a distinction here. In the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we don't see a revival. We will when that temple is destroyed in the future. And this isn't foreign to the New Testament. Acts 3, repent therefore and turn back from your sins so they will be blotted out. The time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Christ appointed for you Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke out of the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. It's not been spiritualized. He still will fulfill that promise in the future. And at this time frame, we live with the Gentiles control. But we, as Paul states, as Gentiles must not be smug. <laughs> this is an opportunity for us to be grafted in to repent and to respond. And so I would argue that verses 20 through 24 is that prelude. It's, again, what Wiersbe called the, the dress rehearsal it's foreshadowing, it's this pattern that's been set and it gives you an idea of what the end times will hold and in verse 25 we come to the end times. So look at this. And there will be signs, sun, moon, stars and nations will be in distress. I mean that's different than verses 20 through 24. The nations are rejoicing. They took down Jerusalem. Here they're in distress. So we're, we're dealing with two different things. People will be fainting from fear and from the expectation of what is coming upon the world. Again, Jesus is drawing from the Old Testament these apocalyptic images and it centers upon the day of the Lord, a phrase we looked at last week. It's common in Old Testament prophecy. It occurs 13 times in the minor prophets alone. The day of the Lord and anticipated by Israel as a future day of the Lord's visitation. It was a period. It was a period not only of judgment but also of restoration. Several Old Testament books speak of the Old Testament, as we mentioned, of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, listen to this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun, the moon, they're dark. What's the text? Tell us in verse 25 here. The sun, the moon, the stars... Twinkle, twinkle, little star, is not going to twinkle. I mean, this is not a good time. The Lord is, the creator of the universe is using his creation to demonstrate his judgment upon humanity. You know, we often think of the created order 
as, as that which displays God's handiwork, his glory, Psalm 19. But it also displays his wrath, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen to what the text says, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There's no such thing as an innocent atheist. God has revealed himself. You are without excuse, the text tells us. I mean, if you've, I remember uh, living in Ohio, we had a tornado that came through. I don't know why I went outside. It should have been in the ditch. But anyway, I, I went outside because it passed over the north side of our neighborhood. It was eerie. It was dark. It was awesome, but scary. And look at the response of the nations. It says they are distressed. They're anxious. The, the, the term could be trapped with torment in the midst of watching this. And, and, and in fact, the text tells us then in verse 26, I mean, they faint with fear. It's one of despair. Ironic that they won't worship the creator, but in many ways they won't worship the creation. <laughs> they fear the creation, but not the creator. And the text tells us that these signs, these things that will happen in the end, it says then in verse 27, they're going to see something even more outstanding, more powerful, more glorious. And that says the Son of Man arriving on a cloud. Jesus is quoting from Daniel 7, and this is key. In fact, I would argue you really can't understand the Olivet Discourse if you don't understand the book of Daniel. They wed together, and that's what makes preaching this text difficult this morning is we really need some time to dive into Daniel. So I challenge you to do that. But Daniel 7 states, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, listen to this, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, and he was present, presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, which shall not be destroyed. It's messianic. It's looking to this one we call Jesus, who will return. The, the, the collective head of the saints who will come as king and reign over this globe. Later in Daniel 7, it says he'll receive the kingdom. It's forever. Verse 22 of 7 says, then he brings judgment upon the nations. And 727 says, and his kingdom will be forever and ever and ever. There'll be no more Russia to deal with. There'll, there'll, there'll be no more tyrants walking this globe. He will reign supreme on his throne. Wow, what a day. And coming in the clouds, well, it speaks of his superhuman majesty, his awesomeness, to quote Lego, right? Everything is awesome. It is, because Psalm 104 says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, and he rides on the wings of the wind. The Son of Man coming is a sign of authority, but also one who will judge. It's not God who judges, it's Christ, because he paid the price. 
Jesus was clearly, I mean, this term son of man is the term that Jesus uses most frequently of himself. And coming in the clouds, he referred to that back in Luke 9. In Luke 12, there's reference to this. But you'll see it again during the hearings before the Sanhedrin, the night he's betrayed. Remember the high priest asked, are, are you the Christ? And Jesus doesn't answer, but he says, well, you'll see the Son of Man in the clouds. And what does the high priest do? He rips his garment. He tears it, which is foreboding. Why would he do that? Because Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the Christ. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge you. That's the whole context of Daniel 7. He's the one who will come. He's going to end this mess. No wonder the high priest has a holy hissy, right? And unlike the nations who cower in fear, what are the followers of God to do? Stand up, raise your heads. Verse 28, your redemption is nigh. He's not referring about the, the salvific from sin. He's talking about redemption from this world and all that it's tainted with. This is our redemption that we look to. I know, there's some sitting here this morning and go, is, is all that really true? <laughs> I mean, have you been on mushrooms this week? Hoffinus? What, what's going on here? I don't understand. I mean, for 2,000 years the church has been saying this. In 2 Peter 3, remember, Peter had a front row seat to all of this. He saw a picture of the kingdom at the Mount of Transfiguration. In 2 Peter 3, he said, God keeps his promises whether we believe them or not, and that God measures time differently from the way we do. And why does he delay? So sinners can repent. Now is the time for salvation. Do it now. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And if you don't believe that, just look around our globe and see what's happening. Who would have thought two months ago we would have a major world war going on in Europe. God keeps his promises. You know, Israel waited 700 years approximately from the time Micah 5, 2 stated that a little boy will be born in Bethlehem who will be your Messiah. 700 years, but it was literally fulfilled. And I would argue just as prophecy has been literally fulfilled time and time again, it will be so in the future. And I love what one Bible teacher states, everything about God is great vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or threatening he has made, he has made good. The God of the universe who has made promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us is the one who's also promised that if you know him, you're in the palm of his hand. He cares for you. That's our God. In a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, not our God. In fact, he already knew it. He's already ahead of it. He's there. And I, I know another question that often pops up with prophecy, is it really important? Shouldn't we just love Jesus and be done? Well, careful, because the study of end times was very important on the lips of Jesus, as well as, I would argue, to the Old and New Testament. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable. And I would argue, in, I mean, think about it, Revelation is the only book with a blessing. Why? Because in it we find peace, we find, we find hope, we find truth. 
It helps us grow as we study end times and our understanding, appreciation, and love for our God. And finally, if you think about it, prophecy isn't just about end times. It's, it's about our Savior. The beginning of the apocalypse, Revelation, says it, it is from Jesus and it's about Jesus. That's why it's singular. This is the revelation of our Savior, Jesus. There is definitely a balance. I love what Vance Havner said. I know that some are always studying the meaning of the fourth toe or the right foot of some beast in prophecy and have never used either foot to go and bring men and women to Christ. And that is a danger, right? Uh, we are so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, as my grandmother used to say. And that is a danger. But the end times are important because then again, in it we find hope, we find assurance, we find peace. Are we facing the end times? That's the million dollar question that I've been asked more than once even this week. Remember what verse 9 states. Look at verse 9. Let's, let's look at this. It says, well, you need to, let's jump even further up. Let's, let's go to verse 8. Watch out that you've not been misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, the time is near. Do not follow them. And when you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be afraid, for these things must happen first, but the end will not come at once. I would argue these signs, the, the wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, they will grow worse as age progresses, but they're not necessarily the sign that this is the Lord's coming at the immediate future. John Walvard states, the fact that the present age, however, fulfills so clearly and in such an intensified way these predictions of Christ is another evidence that the rapture itself must be very near. The rapture is when the church is caught up with Christ in the air and all those who've professed Christ who've gone before us. And that the world is being prepared for the earth-shaking events which will characterize the end time after the church has been taken to heaven. No one knows when the rapture will occur. The Lord stated that. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, they're mourning and Paul says, don't, don't mourn because not like those who have no hope because there's a day coming when Christ will take us. It's unexpected. 1 Corinthians 15 says it's in a twinkling of an eye. And when the day of the Lord comes, the text tells us it comes as a thief. So in other words, it's unannounced. Now there are signs when we get into the day of the Lord that you need to get out of Dodge, that the temple's going to be destroyed. So are we getting closer to the Lord's return? Hands down. Every second that ticks, we're closer. Is the war in Ukraine the sign of the end? Well, in both World War I and World War II, individuals jumped to the conclusion that the war was the final conflict. But as Walvard went on to state, war is not in itself a sign to the end. It's only a sign of progress. We are getting closer, there's no doubt. God's promised he's returning. The sun is going to come back. We know that. When? Don't know. Is it near? Could be. Amir Safarati with the Behold Israel makes this great statement this past week in a uh, newsletter he sends out. When it comes to wars and the fear of what might happen, we as believers must remember that our lives will always be a balance between the calling God has given us in this world and what we know will eventually take place as he carries out his plans. We are to be about our father's business. 
Well, listen to what Tamir says. We are to live in this world and love its people and show them that there is hope, truth, and peace. And when you watch the news and look around you and discouragement comes, and I love this, he says, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Isn't that great? Christ's return, in your notes, I've given you four invaluable truths that are tied with it. First, Christ's return highlights the serious affront sin is to a holy and just God. He will judge. We will need a new heavens and a new earth. We, we've made a mess of this. We being humanity. Secondly, Christ's return displays his great love for his people. Remember, God's judgment of the unfaithful also represents God's faithfulness to the righteous. Psalm 33, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 103 that said, God is angry, but it's short-lived. The, the faithfulness, the love of God is repeated four times in that psalm. It starts with praise the Lord and it ends with praise the Lord because we can trust him. We know he will care for us. And third, Christ's return reiterates his rightful claim of his creation. I love that it does his bidding here in the end. And finally, God's return demonstrates that he keeps his promises even in the midst of chaos, suffering, and disappointments, we can rest in the surety of his word. Perhaps you've not seen the news much this week because there's a war going on in your home or in your soul. It's hard to see anything around you and you've lost sight of Christ. Cling to him. If you don't know this Jesus, now is the day to bend your knee before a holy God. He came to earth the first time to pay for our sin on a cross. And the good news is, he's not in a grave somewhere in Israel. No archaeologist will find his bones. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He's victorious over death, which demonstrates, furthermore, that he is sovereign and does keep his promises, and there is a day when he will return. When Jesus, this is Adrian Rogers there in your notes, when Jesus came the first time, they questioned whether he was king. The next time, we will know he is king of kings and lord of lords. That's our savior. That's our Lord. And cling to that truth this week. And if God should continue to tarry in the months to come and we build a building and God should continue to tarry, May his name be exalted in our lives and in our body as a believers. And what a day it will be when he returns. Father, this is a difficult text and we covered a lot of ground this morning. Areas of eschatology, Christology, theology proper. And Lord, I must confess there's things here I struggle with an understanding fully. But Lord, the bottom line is we know you're coming back. You are sovereign and you keep your promises. And Lord, for this morning, there are some sitting in a pew that they need to be reminded you keep your promises. It's been a rough week. Oh, they're not in Kiev, <laughs> but they're living on a certain street in Westfield or Carmel or Zionsville or wherever. And that battle seems to be raging within the four walls of their home. 
Lord, for those who don't know you, the battle is raging even more so. There's no peace. There's no comfort. I was listening to the radio of a, a lady this past week in Ukraine who turned her life over to you because she said, there's, there's no hope in this world, but there is in Christ. So Father, I pray that if there's one here this morning who doesn't know you, that today would be the day when they would turn their life over to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you that you've written the end and you're already there. What a day. In Jesus' name.